time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. I know this is a really hard time for everyone. We're facing a killer virus, economic pain, and all the frustrations of being cooped up at home. Believe me, I have two teenagers to deal with. But the worst thing we can do is let up now, triggering a second coronavirus wave that causes more death and economic chaos. What you're doing is working. You're saving lives. So let's all hang in there and please stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, on behalf Team of Detroit, the hey. we want to present these buffs to our governor, hey. Big Gretch. Throw those buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. Woo. You can find her in the press under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Come on. Big Gretch and this bitch playing no roles. At Excuse all. all the cussing. That's just how I get my flow on. For real. If you want to leave the state, you can stay gone. But right now, Big Gretch says stay home. All that protesting was irrelevant. irrelevant. Big Gretch ain't trying to hear y'all or the president. How we going to take orders from a non-resident? Talking about it safe, but he ain't coming with the evidence. Uh-oh. Big Gretch got him shook now. When it's all over, you invited to the cookout. When it's all over, you deserve to get took out. Big Gretch with the bucks on, on the lookout. Uh, and she doing it for Michigan, so when she hit the stand, everybody should be listening. She on that pair of bucks with the ice in them glistening. On behalf of the whole Detroit mission. Throw the bucks on her face, cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face. Cause that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Big Gretch.
This is the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is uh, the author of six New York Times bestsellers, possibly more. Uh, most recently, The Hush. He was on the show uh, to talk about that book, and he's back. Um, and uh, I'm excited to have him back. I'm talking about uh, the author of a new book, uh, considered to be a historic novel, a thriller, in fact, called The Unwilling by John Hart. And John joins me by phone. John, welcome back. Thanks uh, thanks for being here. Yeah, Tom, I'm, I'm delighted to be back on your show. I do appreciate it. Um, I, I mentioned that this was, I, I read this, um, I was reading something about the book that indicated it was a historic novel what makes it a historic novel well it's the first book i've ever written set entirely in the past uh so this takes place in 1972 in charlotte north carolina kind of in the shadow of the vietnam war Um, not so much a war story although some people confuse it for such but more story of people whose lives are impacted by the war um you know one family in particular who had two brothers fight uh, in vietnam and then a younger brother at the opening of the novel, who's about to graduate from high school, and um, he has a college deferment, but he's seriously considering enlisting because, uh, you know, his dad was a Marine that fought in Korea. His brothers uh, fought in Vietnam. So it's really the story of this family in this city uh, as the war hangs over everything and soldiers uh, begin coming home from that conflict, uh, including uh, the one twin brother who survived the war. And so it, it's, it, it's a story of these two brothers, uh, Jason and Gibby, um, but it is also, at its heart, very much a crime fiction story. I mean, it, it's um, it's about bad things happening sort of in the shadow of the war, if that makes sense. <laughs> it it does. But but I had to um, smile a little when I read it was a historic novel because uh, I would have been uh, just finishing up high school about the time this book was written. So it it seems contemporary to me. <laughs> Oh, I, look, I get it. I really do. I was seven years old in 1972, and um, but I remember that era. You know, I, I consider sort of the 70s the era that I really grew up, you know, from childhood into, you know, those teen years. And 
I remember it so clearly, the feeling of it, and I really wanted to write a book that captured some of that feeling, you know, what it was like to, A, live in simpler times before all the, you know, smartphones and Internet, et cetera, uh, but also in a time that was equally complex in terms of national strife. I mean, we had, you know, the Vietnam War, we had political corruption, we had inflation, uh, you know, Watergate, Kent State shootings, and all of these things. Multiple assassinations. That felt kind of... Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, it was it was a really uh, difficult time for Americans. So, um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to set a book in that time period just to remind readers that we've been through hard times before as a nation and that if we act in good faith, we really generally do find our way through it. Uh, but but again, I, the space that I like to work in is, is crime fiction, which is all about you know, good people pulled into horrible circumstances and what they do to fight their way through it and where do they find the strength to overcome and what choices do they make when the chips are down? And it's very much that kind of book. How was the, the research you had to do different for this book than, than your previous books? Well, generally speaking, I, I try to avoid research as much as possible. <laughs> Don't uh, we all? <laughs> you know, thing about fiction, you know. Yeah, it, it feels like homework, and I never cared for that. But, you know, fiction is great because people can love it or, or loathe it, but they really can't tell you that you're wrong. That does change when creating a, a piece set in a historical time period different from today. But that it turns out that was really a lot of fun research. I mean, it was, you know, what, what were the cultural thumbs? What were the big movies uh, that people were watching? What were the big uh, albums people were buying? Uh, what uh, restaurant chains might have been in Charlotte in 1972 that are gone now? And then you get into the deeper stuff, you know, some of the uh, the Black Panther type stuff and how that affected that city. And because there, there are some racial elements in this, not not uh, huge ones, but but there's a lot of this political violence um, that sort of sets the tenor uh, of the story. And so I wanted to take the kind of families that I normally do uh, really well, which are these conflicted, if not dysfunctional families who get drawn into uh, the circumstances of some crime. But it really needed to feel like 1972. And that kind of research was a lot of fun. You know, John, I've asked a lot of writers, you know, sort of a chicken and the egg question about which came first, um, the characters or the story. Do you come up with a story and then cast it? Or do you come up with characters and then come up with a story of, of things that might happen to these people? But in this particular case, I'm curious about what goes into selecting the place and how much of a character is well, that the place. Was fairly simple. Well, that, that part was fairly simple for me just because, you know, I grew up in that area. I went to Davidson College right outside of Charlotte. I grew up just north of the city, uh, and so I could set it very well. And, and most of my books take place in North Carolina. Uh, it's just, that, you know, I live in Virginia now. I'm actually uh, on a farm in Virginia, but North Carolina is what I see when I close my eyes. And so, I have a lot of fun doing that. I have a lot of fans and friends in that neck of the woods and enjoy it. Uh, but but here's one little interesting nugget I might add, you know, yeah. to your earlier question about uh, chicken or the egg. You know, so normally for me it is character first. I'm a very character-driven novelist. I, I find that, you know, if you make really fascinating people and then find a way to tell their story so that they're revealed even further through trial and tribulation and violence in some cases, you know, they're, the readers really enjoy going along for the ride. But there was a nugget of a story idea that I've been carrying around for 30 years, which sort of led to this. Um, so 
30 years ago, gosh, maybe even 35, I was on a stretch of empty road driving down to the beach with my girlfriend at the time. And we were in a convertible, and we come across this really flat, empty stretch of road, and we pass a prison transfer bus. And, of course, all these prisoners are pressed against the glass looking at the pretty girl in the convertible as she went by. And I thought to myself, you know, what if what if this lovely girl did something really foolish? Um, and so that that led to one of the opening scenes of this book where these two brothers are, are reunited after one's come back from war and prison. And they're trying to reconnect after years apart. And they're out on a similar stretch of road with two uh, young women, one of whom is not only drunk, but she's kind of sexual and cruel and has a certain venereal pride. And uh, she decides to taunt these prisoners um, with kind of a know a bit of a strip tease um and so two days later she's found viciously murdered and that's what puts the story into motion is the the cops start trying to figure out which one of these brothers might have had something to do with it but that's a nugget of an idea that i've had for 35 years just because you know what a what a powerful image you know these two vehicles alone on an empty road uh, and yeah. one bad decision that leads to a chain reaction so and, it's funny where the ideas come from and and at, at first glance you would think that that maybe somehow one of the uh, prisoners being transferred had had gotten away and and gone after this woman. Well, it's, it's yes and no. So what we what we know at this point in the book is that the older brother Jason, who served three tours in Vietnam and came back under a cloud, got drawn into a world of uh, gun running and heroin and outlaw motorcycle gangs, and actually about a three-year stint in this very same prison. Uh, and it turns out one of the most fascinating characters of the book is this uh, billionaire uh, on death row whose power and money allows him to pull a lot of strings. And there's a reason that he wants Jason back in prison. And so he gets word of what happened on this stretch of road, and he now knows how to find this guy uh, who's been out of prison for about seven or eight weeks at this point. And, uh, uh, you know, these events spring into motion that um, eventually draw Jason back to prison to, to face what I describe as the most dangerous man alive. And uh, it was just a it was just a lot of fun to write. And and then is it um, is it narrated third person? I haven't had a chance to read the book, John, and I apologize. Um, I, I, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Um, but it's is it narrated third person or is one of the brothers telling the story well first of all don't feel bad that you haven't read it it literally just came out today today is, is launch day <laughs> for this book uh so not many people have had a chance to read it yet so don't feel too bad about that and i don't take it personally um it's funny that you ask because i've, I've written books in first person and in thirds you know first person is great because you can get really deep into that one person's character but it's harder to plot the story because you have to stay with that point of view. I actually did something different with this book I've never done before. Um, I call it cheating third person. So the younger brother whose story this primarily is, I tell from first uh, person point of view. And then the older brother, fresh out of prison and some of the other characters, there's a love interest, there's a best friend, you know, there's lots of cops involved. Um, and of course, there's there's two different serial killers in this book, which I don't normally do serial killer books, but these characters are just so clear to me, and those are all told in third person. Uh, so it, it was a it was a it was a different thing for me, and I think it works really well. The new book is called "The Unwilling" from New York Times bestseller John Hart. We'll have more with John straight. Everybody's doing. 
it on brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe, and save lives. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call the X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. 
Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. The new book is called The Unwilling from New York Times bestseller, John Hart. We'll have more with John straight ahead. Uh, That sounds like um, it lends itself uh, possibly to um, a screen adaptation. Uh, because it it suggests that you almost need to be watching to know which point of view we're following. Well, people have always called my books filmic, and that sounds like a made-up word, but they really love it in Hollywood. Um, and I actually had three books since one level of production or another uh, out in Hollywood before the pandemic hit, and they're all in God knows where kind of limbo now. Um, this <laughs> yeah. particular COVID limbo. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. So this book, The Unwilling, my, my film agents feel really strongly about, uh, and they're just trying to figure out you know, when to actually begin submitting it because, again, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty out there, um, you know, not, not the least of which is about just ensuring a production. I mean, how do you, how do you ensure a production with COVID running around? Uh, and only the, the studios really have the funds to do that. Um, so it's, it's a complicated time. It, it is a complicated time, and a complicated time to be releasing a book, I would think. Well, we were originally scheduled to come out in June of last year, um, and so we made the decision in March uh, to delay it. You know, at that time, we were all sort of thinking this would be a couple months and done, and we'd just get through it. And of course, <laughs> yeah, I remember those days. a little days. bit different than that. Um, yeah, those, those heady days of uh, self-delusion. Yeah, it'd just be a few uh, so weeks. I was supposed to be on a six-week-long. Yeah, a few weeks, and then, then we're out. And, and so I was supposed to be on a six-week-long 40-city tour, uh, you know, and that got canceled as well, which makes me sad because I always enjoyed those tours. But but it, I'm very happy we can do this um, this radio chat. But it's um, it's not as much fun as being on the road because that's all about nice hotels and but that's I'll take what I can get in the time of COVID. But that's but that's interesting because um, I you know I ask a lot of of writers if they enjoy that part of uh, the publishing business because writing is uh, uh, such a solitary endeavor. Um, you know, it sounds like you enjoy interacting with people, especially people who've read the book and, and can give feedback. Well, it's funny because so many writers are introverts, right? Because the, the job is a lonesome job. I mean, it's day in and day out, month after month, uh, by oneself. And, uh, you know, I'm a bit more of an extrovert. So the I've often described the tour is my, you know, welcome reinsertion into humanity. And so I, I get to go out and meet readers and talk to folks like you face-to-face. And, um, you know, it's, it's just it's a reminder of why I enjoy doing this. Um, you know, it's great to write the words and stuff, but I don't live in a vacuum. And I like to get out and interact with people that, that enjoy these books. And, um, 
you know, with every book, those people become more numerous and the, you know, the crowd's more exciting. And uh, it's, it's an easy thing to miss once uh, it becomes an important part of the yearly cycle, if that makes sense. When you're writing, are you completely immersed in the story, or do you have a sense that you're playing to an audience? No, I, I get pretty immersed. I mean, my, my philosophy is to write a book that I would enjoy reading. Uh, once you start trying to play to an audience, you start picking that audience apart and wondering who might like this or dislike it. And that's a dangerous uh, course to chart because it's impossible to please everyone. And the sooner a novelist really incorporates that core conviction, you know, the, the better and the truer the fiction is going to be, right? I mean, you know, as soon as, it, you know, as soon as you get a bad review and you start thinking, well, if I'd done it differently, I might not have gotten that bad review, you know, then you're, you're corrupting the whole process. So I, I really try to keep it clean. You don't get bad reviews, do you, John? <laughs> Look, everybody gets stung from time to time. You can't please everybody. Uh, I, I know that. I accept that. When I was a younger writer, it used to trouble me when it happened. Uh, you know, the, the New York Times once said some lovely things and then ended the review calling me long-winded. And I was like, well, shoot. <laughs> you know, I don't really like that. But, uh, you know, it's just, it's just one of those things, right? You can't please everybody. The um, the One of the other things that I that I wanted to ask you is, is how the, the – um, the the notion of sheltering in place and and being on lockdown or quarantined, however you want to describe it, how that has impacted uh, your work. I, I assume that you work at home or in a private office somewhere, uh, but um, a, a lot of people you have been using this time and have been very productive. Others have been sort of like a deer in the headlights. Um, how has it been for you? Have you been able to, to really knock out some stuff? Are there three John Hart books sitting on the shelf ready to send to publishers? You know, it's, it's a super fair question, and I, and I hate the answer I'm going to have to give to you because you'd think, yes, this would be a super productive time. And in many ways, you know, my life hasn't changed. I mean, I live on a you know, hundred and some acre farm. I, I walk to my office. Uh, it's, it's, you know, part of my barn. Uh, I just go up there with the dogs and I do my thing. I don't have to go anywhere. You know, I should have written three novels. Um, the, the problem is, at least for me, is that I need to be in, at peace in my thinking to kind of get deep enough to, to write these books. And so, you know, it's, it's been difficult to do that. Um, you know, I've got children home on lockdown. I've been worried about family and friends. Um, you know, it, it's it's been deeper. It's been harder to go as deep as I need to do. So yeah, the work's getting done, but it, but it's actually been more of a challenge than uh, a boon, if that makes sense. Yeah, because it does. The, I, honestly, the, the daily function. I, I now go ahead. Tom. The list of things that that mm-hmm. I wish I had done over the last year is getting mm-hmm. longer every day, John. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it's the new normal, and I'm trying to, you know, process and incorporate it um, like we all are. I mean, look, I have no complaints. I mean, I can do my job at home, and, uh, you know, books are still selling, and, you know, people still are happy to read them. So uh, I really have no complaints at all. Have you seen an uptick in the uh, uh, online or or audio uh, sales? 
Yeah. Uh, so yes, is the short answer. Ebooks and audio are both up. Um, you know, book sales in general are up about twelve or thirteen percent across the big houses. Uh, but when you start digging into the numbers, you see some of the problems involved. So if people aren't going to bookstores, for instance, and they're just buying off Amazon, you know, it puts pressure on the bookstores, which is bad. Um, but also it, it means that the booksellers who are passionate about books aren't able to sort of hand sell their favorites to people. So if you're a brand name author, if you're James Patterson or John Grisham or Stephen King or any of these guys, you know, I, I think you're probably selling more books because people are bored. They can't go to the sporting events or the movie theater, so they're buying books, but they can't go browse. And so they go to Amazon and they, they click through to the names that pop to the top, right? Um, but I think for and for me, it's fine. I mean, it's uh, I'm I'm kind of I'm not at that level, but I'm I'm. But you're pretty well established now, John. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate you saying that, and I am, uh, you know. And so again, I have no complaints, but, but by no means am I, you know, at that level where I've been cranking out number one bestsellers and everyone in, in the land knows my name. I do have a really large and loyal uh, following of readers, so my, you know, my books sell. Um, but I have a lot of friends who are, you know, not so far along, and you know, and they're and they're suffering. I mean, they, you know, publishers know how difficult it is to find uh, avenues for new writers, and so they. These new writers are suffering, um, is what, and I worry for the business long term. But right now, sales are good, and, and I think publishers are, are doing really well, um, much better than we expected a year ago. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I, it, it, it's like you say, people can't get out to the bookstores and browse, and, and the first reaction would be, oh, no, this is going to kill book sales. But people have a lot of time on their hands, so they want to, you know, entertain themselves, and books are a great way to spend some of this time. In uh, you know, so you know, it it makes up for it to some degree. I think so. Again, I, I don't worry for the success of the businesses, and uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to be negatively impacted. Although, again, we're day one of the unwillings release, so I, you know, it's too early, and I don't want to jinx anything, but. Uh, you know, it's like a lot of businesses that are going to muddle through this and come out fine on the other side. You know, at least we're not a cruise line industry <laughs> or, or a hotel chain. Right. Uh, or an airline. I, I feel good about I feel good about you're an airline. I, mean, I, I feel great about uh, the chances for this book, The Unwilling, and I feel great about uh, the publishing industry in general. We just need to get through this like everybody else. Um, do you work on more than one thing at a time or or uh, do you pretty much just just finish something and then move on to the next thing yeah writing books for me is, is such a personal thing and such an enormous commitment you know it's funny a lot a lot of people think that writing novels for a living is this sort of peter pan gig you know roll out of bed at 10 write for 90 minutes in your bathrobe have the first martini at lunch and then, you know, then you're off to the golf course it's not like that i mean to, to really write a compelling novel you have to live uh this story 24 hours a day i mean literally go to bed thinking about it dream about it wake up thinking about it i mean that that's where most of the work is done you know for me as i said i'm on this farm so i think about it when i'm on the tractor i think about it if i'm you know clearing trails in the woods it, it, it's a constant process, and so when I sit down at the keyboard, most of the heavy lifting is done, and I can write deep, right, deep into the characters, deep into the story. Um, 
and it's very it leaves very little room for thoughts of other books, for instance, or, or other things. In fact, it, it makes my wife a little nuts sometimes because I, I get glassy-eyed at dinner, and it's because I'm running scenes, and she knows it. <laughs> See, I, you're you're changing. But, but that is. You're changing my notion of. Uh, successful writers i i always picture a a turtleneck sweater and a and a tweed jacket with a pipe in a cabin in the northeast somewhere where you disappear for months at a time and come out with a novel <laughs> well look hey that happens but i i have uh i have a wife and i have children and um you know friends and other commitments and other passions but but the writing um, is incredibly time-consuming, and it has to be. Look, this is, um, you know, in publishing, people like to say you're only as good as your last book, and that's a numbers game, right? Uh, my my philosophy is is you're only as good as your next book, and so I, I do everything in my power to make every book better than every book I've written before. Um, you know, it's it's just not a career I care to coast on. So because of that, I don't turn out a book a year. You know, I'm averaging about a book every two years probably. Um, and, and that's okay because it's the best book I can possibly write, and, and that's certainly the case here. I, I couldn't be – I think I took about 16 or 18 months to write The Unwilling, uh, and I wouldn't trade a minute of it. And the um, – I'm really looking forward to it, John, because the story sounds fascinating. And and as I said, it because of my age, it sounds almost a little contemporary for me, or at least a look back during my own lifetime. Which would be different if you'd have set it in, you know, 1865. Or... Right, right, which I have no desire to do. Uh, and, and a lot of, you know, we get a lot of early readers. Um, you know, the publishers send out advanced copies and get a lot of early reads from, uh, you know, influence makers in the business. And the, the universal um, response to this is, is, has been that it does feel very much like time travel. Uh, back to the early 70s in terms of the, the tensions and the uh, the cultural uh, footnotes and all these things. Um, and it's actually so far, if you look at some of these uh, sites like Goodreads, you know, in spite of six bestsellers uh, in the past, this one is getting the, the strongest ratings by readers uh, by far. So uh, we're all really uh, very excited. This is going to turn out well. And in fact, um, you know, one of the very top people in publishing uh, read an early copy and that it was one of the two best thrillers he'd read in uh, 30 years. Um, so we're, we're all filled with uh, hope for this book. Hope it's going to do well. Well, that's great. C.J. Box loved it. Well, C.J.'s a good dude. Uh, I don't know him well enough to say that he did that out of friendship, so I think he was sincere when he said it. Uh, but I, I appreciate his uh, weighing in and saying those nice things. I mean, Raw, tender, brutal, and exquisite, all at the same time. I mean, I'll take that all day long. <laughs> you know, get that for every book. Um, it, there's there's a, a long period of time, uh, or a lot of things that happen after a manuscript is finished. There's, you know, there are rewrites and editing, and then the whole publishing process. Um, do you go immediately into another book, or or do you take a little time to to I don't know, decompress and and, uh, and then maybe spend a little time promoting the book and, and then go at the next thing? Well, so the decompression part is, is no joke because 
uh, you know, to go as deep as I do, you know, there's the, the, the fibers of a novel really kind of get entwined at a cellular level. Um, and if I tried to move directly into a second book, I'd, I'd, I'd have all those confused cells, right? I mean, which, which story am I dreaming about tonight or thinking about as I wake? So um, I generally take about three months off, maybe four months off between books uh, to kind of let the old story fade. And I think it was Pat Conroy who used the term, you know, you've got to let the well fill back up. Um, and that's wow. about ideas for the next story. It's about energy uh, to undertake the next story. I go into every book, whenever I start a new book, I do it with a sense of dread. I mean, I, know, I talk to writers that wake up, they're so excited to start a new book, but I know how hard it is, I know how long it takes, and how you know fraught with uncertainty it is, and maybe that's because I don't outline, um, you know, I sort of write these things as I go, so it, it's possible for things to go wrong. Um, I think you mentioned Redemption Road um, earlier. You know, that was my fifth novel. I, I worked for a year uh, on what was supposed to be that fifth novel before I realized it wasn't good enough. And I called my publishers and said I wasn't going to deliver uh, that manuscript, that I was going to throw it out and begin uh, entirely anew. And once you give up a year of your life like that and realize all the costs involved, you know, it's, it's hard to, to be flip uh, about the process. You have to take it pretty seriously. John, I, I am really enjoying this conversation as, as I have our previous conversations, um, and I wish we had more time, but we don't. And as you know, I always give uh, guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, this book, your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do. Uh, dot .com. Uh Most everything you'll need is there. I'm on Facebook, uh, John Hart Author, Twitter, uh, the same. I don't tweet very much. Uh, Instagram, John Hart Author uh, as well. Um, social media is one of these things that I embrace grudgingly. Uh, I'm not like these younger kids that live for it, but, but I do try to, to share um, you know, some of my life with, with readers that are interested so I can be found in those places. Well, John, thanks for spending this time with me. I'm looking forward to reading the book, and we're all looking forward to what's next. Uh, well, hey, thank you, Tom. I, I always enjoy talking to you, and um, I hope we can do it again with the next book. All right. Take care. That was uh, New York Times bestseller uh, John Hart. The new book is called The Unwilling. And um, let's see. He's had uh, six New York Times bestsellers, The King of Lies, Down River, The Last Child, Iron House, Redemption Road, and The Hush. And the new book, uh, as I mentioned, is called The Unwilling. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead.
like a crow It only got worse when I started talk I never cared to listen or do what I was told I cared about my guitar and the girl next door Seasons changed and the years went by The devil started to show more in my eyes Of the smoke I told The truancy notes always shows up In every single song I wrote I like wild women drinking and sinning Oh mama tried but that's just the beginning The motels, jail cells and dingy bars Man look bad if you see it from a shooting star I like wild women drinking and sinning Oh mama tried but that's just the beginning Sometimes I wonder if I would have been good If dad hadn't left my neighborhood As the years went by, I tried to stand on my own. I've been roughed up, used and bruised and pushed to the floor. I've explored every road to try to make things right. But I seem to forget this noose is tight and the apples don't fall. Far from the tree, no apples don't fall. Far from the tree, especially rotten ones like me. Oh, what will they say when they bury me? I like wild women drinking and sinning. Oh, mama, try, but that's just the beginning. The motels, jail cells, and dingy. Bars may look bad if you see it from a shooting star. I like wild women drinking and sinning. Oh, mama, try, but that's just the beginning. Sometimes I wonder if I would have been good if dad hadn't left my neighborhood. Whoa, oh, oh. Whoa, oh, oh. Whoa, oh, oh. Whoa, oh, oh. Wild women drinking and sinning. Oh, mama, try, but that's just the beginning. The motels, jail cells, and dingy bars may look bad if you see it from a shooting star. I like wild women drinking and sinning. Oh, mama, try, but that's just the beginning. Sometimes I wonder if I would have been good if dad hadn't left my neighborhood. Whoa, oh, oh. Whoa, oh, oh. I have to lay low for a while So I'll be staying here inside it's too dangerous out in the world I'll see you on the other side When I'm in my quarantine In my little place too high My heart is aching and I'm missing you I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side I'll see you on the other side we're all in for a bumpy ride I'll see you on the other side It's 
the same without you here I hold on to this phone so tight And I'll whisper you a goodnight kiss I'll see you on the other side When I crawl out of my cage When the world is purified I will find you and I promise this I'll see you on the other side other side and I'll meet you with arms open wide see you on the other side see you on the other side see you on the other side and I'll meet you with arms open wide see you on the other side Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. If you are sick with COVID-19 or think you might have it, take steps to help protect other people from getting sick. Stay home except to get medical care. Call the doctor before visiting. Separate yourself from others who live with you. Wear a mask to protect others. Cover your coughs and sneezes with a tissue and clean your hands right away. Avoid sharing items with other people in your home. This includes things like towels and bedding. Be sure dishes are washed in hot water or the dishwasher before anyone else uses them. Stay aware of how you feel. If you start to have difficulty breathing or if you are worried about your health, call your doctor. For more tips, visit cdc.gov. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. 
Imagine a journey down a picturesque riverway. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. The Tom Sumner program.com. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. words about North Carolina, my home state, possibly the finest state in this entire union. We got industry of all kinds, pretty country, raised corn, cotton, tobacco, peaches, peanuts, all like that. Got colleges all over the state, fine quality, pretty girls, and run off the finest white lightning made anywhere. <laughs> hey, I see you all ain't forgot your raising. But it is, it's, uh, well, this, uh, this government stuff that you all use up here in New York and all, that'll kill you. It will, you can't tell what's in it. Here last, uh, last New Year's Eve, I was up in New York and uh, I, got, I got betrayed into drinking several, several folks' health. And uh, I was trying to be as, you know, as robust as I could about it. And, uh, I kept on drinking their healths, friends, till I'll tell you the truth, my own pretty near become endangered. <laughs> but, well, now that's not true about white lightning. Now you can tell what's in that because you can see through it. <laughs> and I never shall forget my first swallow of it. I, I took a good one, and I swallowed her down and she hit bottom. And, and my face turned red, and my eyes rolled back, and I gagged just a little bit. And then by and by I got over it. And some of the boys says, how are you? And I says, boys, I'm doing fine, gaining ground all the time. And I think I've got her if she don't jump. <laughs> yes, sir. I says, says, give me just a minute to rest and I'll try her again. <laughs> there, was, uh, there was one fella that lived there close to me there a while, a fella named Sam Wood. And he did, he made the best they was made anywhere around. But he had bad luck with it. He uh, seemed like every time he'd run off a batch, why he'd get caught. And he was on the county roads so long and got so old that they finally just put him to a cooking. And he is serving up the boys one night. He is serving up a mess of creasy salad. That's turnip greens. It's, it's not really, I just don't know what else to call them. But he is serving them up and one of them called him back. Says, Sam, says, come in. Says, there's a lizard in my greens. 
Sam looked back and forth and says, hush. Says the others will want one too. <laughs> they, I, I mean, they might be good fixed right. <laughs> Sam, he, uh, he used to, he had bad trouble with drinking a whole lot of it too. But uh, he quit about, oh, five, six, seven years ago. And I got to talking about it with him one time. I says, Sam, did you ever have the DTs? He says, boy, I had them when they first come out. <laughs> now, I'd like to report to you here that there is excellent progress going on all over. Down there, even in, in the most backwoods communities at home, they're getting all kinds of modern conveniences. There was a fella that worked at the same factory that I used to with my daddy there in Mount Airy. And he come in out of the mountains one morning just as mad as he could be. And he says, Carl, says the people up there in the mountains getting to act just like the people in town. Says there's a family of them up there close to us that started putting screens on their windows. Sh shutting the flies out on everybody else. <laughs> and well, then too, I think this is pretty good. Uh, nearly all, nearly all of our local officials can read and write now. They can. And some of them do their own punctuating. There was, there was, there was one in particular that I remember. He was learning pretty good. And he is down at the barber shop reading the paper and showing off. And, well, he is, he is reading along, and he says, uh, says, I see him while so-and-so paid the spring sacrifice. And the barber says, yeah, I heard where he is killed. Says, don't say he is killed. Says he paid the spring sacrifice. <laughs> it's not very funny. I just thought I'd tell you. <laughs> and we are, we are thrifty. I'm proud of that. I had an uncle one time. He said he bought him a new pair of shoes off a fella. Said he paid three dollars and a quarter for them, pretty brown shoes, and said he put them on, and he was walking on uptown, and said he was walking along, and said his left shoe commenced to hurt him a little, and he was limping just a little bit, and said he was walking on, and he passed one of his friends, says, "What are you limping for?" He says, "I bought these shoes, and this left one's hurting me just a little." He says, "Why don't you cut them?" He says, "I ain't gonna cut these shoes." Says, "I paid three dollars and a quarter for them." kept on walking, there's a hurting worse, and he got studying about that thing. And he got studying, maybe that fella had something about cutting that shoe. He says, I took my knife, and I cut a little hole just about that size, right where the sore was. And he says, yeah, you know, I wouldn't took three dollars and a quarter for that hole. <laughs> well, <laughs> he told me that, and I had to get up off the porch. <laughs> But now, them of you that has to live here in Washington, there's a whole lot to be admired about, about Washington, too. Cherry trees, monuments, and everything like that. The main thing, though, that I admire about Washington are the pretty girls, and I'm bound to say that. They are as pretty and well-built as any I ever seen tried to fill a balloon dress. <laughs> and I love to look at them. My wife told me a long time ago, she says, you can look at the pretty girls, but don't you never touch Nairn. And friends, I've tried to live by that. 
course, that throws me to do an extra lot of looking just to make up for that one handicap. <laughs> well, I reckon we might as well go right ahead and get right on into the service as the choir ready. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program.
Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 